Hello, friends. Welcome back to American Liberty. I'm Kevin Warmholt. Today, I am joined by a great guest. He is the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. He is also an advocate for cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. He is an American economics writer of the Austrian School Method. Sir, Jeffrey Tucker, welcome to American Liberty. Thanks so much for having me. So I see you were born in California and then you moved to Georgia. Did you start the flee from California and the direction? Did you see the direction it was going? <laughs> I fled. I fled from California when I was about uh, seven months old. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure where that. Is. You know, uh, you're probably uh, looking at my Wikipedia page. The yeah. uh, uh, I wish I could say it's my Wikipedia page. People just post whatever they want to there, and uh, and I'm not allowed to actually by rules not allowed to edit it. So it's just so much of that stuff on that page is actually gibberish, and there's really nothing I can do about it, unfortunately. So, so you grew up in Georgia your whole life? No, no, I'm from Texas. I mean, Texas. So I, don't know, I don't know what. Wow. <laughs> again, I've never even, I never even look at that page. But no, I've, I grew up wow. my whole life in Texas. Yeah. All right. My, my family's lived in Texas since about 18, 1830. So uh, that's where I grew up. Oh wow. How, uh, how long have you been in Georgia? Well, I lived in Georgia for about five years, and then, um, yeah. About so you, five years. So you saw the chaos in this last election cycle with the uh, governor race. Uh, <clears throat> a little bit, a little bit. I, you know, it's I'm kind of bad. At, I don't not following. I don't follow po politics that much. But I think I, 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 I guess it was it was a little bit in my peripheral vision. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's the same. You know, we have we have weird. Uh, ideological contests in America t t today, but one, you know, on one hand, we've got this identitarian politics of the left socialists, and they're they're an unending push for redistribution and <clears throat> and uh, growth of government power. On the other hand, we have the rise of populist nationalism, which presents its own kinds of dangers in the form of you know protectionism and censorship and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it's actually really tragic that we don't seem to have any uh, viable political forces in this country they're pushing for plain old liberty and 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 you're a big advocate for anarcho capital um uh, sorry anarcho capitalism correct well yeah i mean i i i don't think we really need, i wouldn't say we need a state that's my own that's my own view but i consider myself you know a a, a, a liber, lib, libertarian in the classical sense you know like i don't classical <clears throat> liberal right yeah mm -hmm. yeah i don't see Myself somehow, you know, split off from the tradition of Adam Smith and 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 liberalism generally, you know, from Voltaire to Locke to Jefferson. I mean, uh, to me, the right kind of libertarianism looks back and embraces the, the the past and doesn't doesn't reject it. And that's something that the, there's a lot of uh, rejecting the past and erasing history. I think it's important that we preserve history. You are a free market guy, and. You were involved. I, I've watched some of your speeches online, and the way you present your presentations are, is amazing. Okay. Um, I wanted to have you on to discuss the free market and how important it is to restrict the amount of involvement that government has in the free market to keep manipulation out. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is that nothing the government ever does to the free market 
results in any kind of good. It ends up just like regulations privilege some producers over others. Taxes just diminish the amount of productivity and, and investment that we can have. <clears throat> uh, price controls are, of course, catastrophic. And uh, I would include in the, the free market the idea of, of of international trade too, you know, this is like we we need international trade, and and especially now in an age of globalism, it's become more important than ever. And this is very strange to me that that this whole point about free trade has become controversial in our time. I don't entirely understand why. It hasn't been a controversy since World War II, and then suddenly, now it is. And it's actually what what's what's happening in the U.S. with uh, its isolation from the rest of the world is actually potentially ruinous for the American economy. Tariffs, uh, uh, you know, is a big thing that Trump pushed. Uh, tariffs against China, China's beaten us, all that nonsense. Right. It was a, I think it was a scare tactic to get people. You know, I, I'm for absolutely zero tariffs because who it hurts is the consumer. So, when is there another way to, I guess, combat the competitive China without having to put tariffs? Well, one way would be to um, is the traditional way, which is through diplomacy. So w one of the annoyances that Trump has against China is what he considers to be their trade deficit. But this is just a misunderstanding. I mean, <clears throat> an accounting uh, trade deficit is not the same thing as an accounting deficit because uh, one country sells more to another country than that country sells to uh, it doesn't actually have any relevance whatsoever. It doesn't mean that <clears throat> the country is losing money. It's a pure accounting fiction that's easily manipulated by country of origin regulations. So <clears throat> these. So what, what Trump did is it's a simple mistake. Actually, Bastiat talks about uh, uh, people doing this in the 19th century. He's a businessman, so he likes to look at balance sheets, right? So he wants to see if, his, um, <clears throat> if he's making revenue or profits. And so he um, got confused over these trade deficit st statistics and thinks that if we have a trade deficit with a certain country, that means that we're losing money and they're making money, So which is just untrue, but he, you can't convince him of this. So he went through the list of top countries that, with whom we had trade deficits and came up with, you know, China number one, Mexico number two, and then ca Canada and Ireland and Malaysia uh, are on the list, <clears throat> and uh, so on it goes. So he's been kind of, oh, also um, India. You recently, he took after India. And everybody's confused about Trump's what Trump's trade policies are. Like every day, it seems like there's something new that people can't understand. What, what it really comes down to is that he's just going through the list of people with whom the U.S. has trade deficits and, and trying, to f trying to flip that to a trade surplus. And, I mean, really, there's, that, that's a completely fictional idea. and It won't amount to anything. Um, in terms of you know, China's own abuses, you know, um, the biggest the people who pay the biggest price for that are Chinese consumers themselves. You know, the fact that China subsidizes industry, well, we subsidize agriculture. And you notice that the the agreement seems to be between U.S. and China that that was struck, I guess, talks back on as of late yesterday, is that they have to buy more of our subsidized agriculture if we'll buy more uh, support more of their subsidized industries. <laughs> right. And These that's two, and, two big states bailing each other out, basically. <laughs> yeah, he created a bailout situation with, with the farmers, the, the soybean yeah. uh, crop, and and they had to wait. Uh, a lot of the farmers in the Midwest had to wait to see what they were going to plant for the year, and with the weather being so bad this year in the Midwest, it, it, it's crippled them. People are, are barely surviving. 
and Trump, of course, signs a bailout. So what? Yeah, you know, which he, really didn't help, right? I mean, the, I mean, I've been trying to think about it from the point of view of a Iowa farmer or something. I mean, the fact that uh, Trump threw around fifteen billion dollars. I mean, you know, you probably didn't see much of that at all. What you really need are markets to sell your stuff, right? That's and and if and if your markets are, your supply chains are ruined. Uh, uh, because some guy doesn't want you to to do it, or you know, some foreign state suddenly it's retaliating for the imposition of tariffs or something. Um, that's that's really that's really very bad for you. I tell you, um, I think the worst mistake probably that Trump's made in his whole conduct of the trade policy was the coming after Huawei the way it did. I mean, the U.S. has a long and very famous record of having used American tech companies to spy. Right? That this is sort of that's why Ed Snowden's in Russia, and we all know this. Right. And so, for and, and so to accuse China of using Huawei, I mean, Huawei is actually, yeah, I mean, it's a very much of a free enterprise firm. It was founded on the model of, of Apple. The the guy, uh, the CEO of the company, actually wrote a <clears throat> a book about it, and he's a big champion of the free market and that sort of thing. The company is wildly successful, and also. Huawei is going to be huge for it's they're, they're way advanced over any American company or any company in the world in five G tech technology, and if you were a uh, a resident, a rural resident in the Midwest or or uh, Wyoming, middle of Wyoming or something where there's very few cell towers and everything, <clears throat> you can't get the internet. That makes you unsafe. Makes you disconnected from the world. Huawei uh, was was planning to come in with great new hardware to fix all that so that we can actually be linked to see the shining sea in this country. So the so the arrest of the of of the CFO of Huawei was an extremely aggressive move. Now that and, was done by Canada though, was it not? Yeah, at the instigation of the US, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's very <laughs> very creepy and weird and and held holding this lady for I don't know months in and I, prison, it probably wasn't the most uncomfortable thing, but nobody wants to, was, wasn't, it wasn't, you know, like high security prisoner or something like that, but it's still, it's, you know, you're under arrest and uh, right. nobody wants to be caged. Um, and, and then, I mean, I have friends of mine that were planning to buy Huawei phones, you know, and then out of nowhere, uh, Huawei's, I guess, well, they blocked the imports of them. I mean, there's, well, it deprecated them so they couldn't be serviced by Google. Now, as of yesterday, last night, um, apparently, uh, Trump has reversed himself on this again, right? Saying that uh, U.S. can sell uh, technology to Huawei. So I don't know if that means that <clears throat> the war on Huawei is over, or is it just on hiatus? I mean, this, this is getting crazy. You know, this is like there's too much uncertainty and uh, arbitrary uh, power of one guy. Trump just he just loves he loves exercising it basically, as far as I can tell. He, uh, he's a he's a master of the smoke and mirrors effect. I like to call it. You know, he's he's just he keeps you so confused and bouncing all over the place. It's like where do you focus? Yeah. Um, <laughs> he he. So I, was, to... I was worried that we were going to have a president that that didn't have a drinking problem. I think it's probably the first time in American <laughs> history where we yeah. had a president without a drinking problem. Maybe Jimmy Carter was the last one, and uh, that's a that's a problem. These guys really do need to quit work at at four four p.m. and have a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> to relax a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, he used currency manipulation when he was campaigning about China manipulating currency. Was that a real issue, or how? Uh, how was? Well, no, I don't. I don't really think so. The markets are the ones that decide. 
uh, currency valuations. And sometimes finance ministers can can talk a currency down, but they're not more powerful than the markets themselves. <clears throat> the idea is that if you're uh, if you drive your your currency valuation down relative to the other currencies, then that somehow uh, gives you an advantage in exports. But it's not clear that that really is a sustainable proposition. And it's especially bad that Trump is accused China of manipulating this currency. But I tell you what's really dangerous is that he thinks that it's somehow in the advantage of a country to have a weak currency. That means, you know, Trump himself would be, <clears throat> might retaliate against this currency manipulation by further devaluing the dollar, which I think he's actually doing. I'm not sure if it's intentional yet, but <clears throat> but that actually is a very short-term thinking. I mean, you can get a, a short-term advantage uh, but it's not going to help you over the long term. Being a consumer nation, how much do these tariffs and all this nonsense affect this country, the buyers in this country? <clears throat> Sometimes it's hard to tell. I mean, you can you can run the numbers and come up with some very large figures. Uh, I mean, just 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 looking at the amount of of imports and considering you know the the tariffs that we're tacking onto them and what people are paying, uh, we're roughly. Uh, taxing as much now as we were uh, when before Trump's tax cuts of 2017. So it's actually kind of kind of negated the the tax cuts, which were too small in my mind to my mind anyway. Um, so, but it's actually the the real. It's like Bastiat said about tariffs. You, there are certain unseen. There are seen costs, but there are unseen costs. There's all kinds of businesses that might have started that didn't. Uh, imports that we would have uh, had, but but declined to have. Um, products that would have been innovated that were not innovated, and so on. So, the the costs are actually much larger than the pure accounting costs. And I, I'm I'm actually really concerned about the disruption of supply chains. You know, back at, at, at in 1930 with the Smoot-Hawley tariff, um, that was really devastating because it came a year after the stock market crash and it really harmed um, growth going forward. But we weren't even we weren't even a, uh, a a trading nation that much at that time. I mean, things have completely changed. It, Tariffs in 1930 weren't all that significant, but now with the way the global economy functions, I mean, there's really literally nothing around you. There's very few products that you're sitting around right now that was, wasn't touched by at least two nations of production, several levels right. of supply change. I mean, it's it's we're all just deeply, and I think this is a good thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. We're all deeply dependent on trade. It's, it's actually been a major reason for the world prosperity. I mean, people talk about this all, I'm, I'm slightly mystified by it too. Like how can we have so much prosperity and so much economic growth given how gigantic and regulatory uh, the administrative state is, not just here, but around the world. I mean, the state is the enemy of prosperity. How come we're still prospering? And a major reason is um, trade. You know, the collapse of communism in, in 1990 opened up, you know, half the world that would previously have been shut behind uh, the Iron Curtain uh, to, to become included in the World Division of Labor. And then the reforms in China, you know, where throughout the, the, starting the late 80s and throughout the 90s, have just transformed, you know, the country from being this Maoist uh, uh, killing fields of, of, of desperate poverty and, and, and horror into, <clears throat> you know, this, this gigantic uh, 
cosmopolitan nation, you know, where, I mean, you see, you see uh, whole cities now that are uh, reaching up to the clouds uh, that 15 years ago were just, uh, were just rural rice fields. I mean, it's, it's amazing what's, what's been going on. And, <clears throat> you know, here's the other thing. Uh, the U.S. growing at 2 to 3% a year, actually, and we're used to that. That's very low by historical standards. The China GDP is growing at 7%. You know, and now you don't have to be a mathematical genius to figure out where this is going to look in 10 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I'm glad you brought up communism and the whole prosperity after the fall of communism in Russia and all the other states. Um, there's a rise right now in socialism in America. There's a rise in the idea in, in collectivism that, um, you know, and, and at the same time, there's that same body trying to erase the past is the is that is there a reason for that a connection between socialism and erasing the past and if how are people so drawn to socialism isn't it crazy uh, it's it's I, I don't know you know it, part of the problem is ideology once people get an idea in their head there's just like nothing that can shake them from it it's actually extremely creepy i can't even watch these democratic debates um at least the republicans i can kind of make sense out of what they're saying it's it's a, a lot of wrong and a lot of evil but i can kind of make sense of it the democrats are just um uttering nonsense just uh, all the there's time. a lot of free stuff coming our way according yeah, to what i've well, seen yeah. you can you can't <laughs> solve all problems in the world just by saying well let's just make it free I mean, that's utterly insane and it's like denying the, it's literally denying the existence of, of, of the economic problem altogether. But, yeah, but these are also people that imagine that you can, you know, somehow manipulate the global climate to achieve a certain uh, uh, stability over the course of a of hundred years. I mean, that, you know, using government power uh, and regulations. I mean, there's a, there's a level of insanity. It's just utterly out of, con it's just completely out of control. And, yeah, the, De the Democratic Party has just moved so far left at this point. I never imagined we'd be talking about socialism. I mean, socialism is is has a horrible history uh, involving uh, un unparalleled human suffering and and death. Look at Venezuela right now. Yeah, you don't have to look too far. Um, yeah, it's right here in our backyard. Yeah, yeah, right, uh, right. We've got. And, and, and Cuba's right there, and uh, we've got North Korea cases, and <clears throat> we had, you know, half the world overthrowing this nonsense just 30 years ago, and somehow, somehow it's all back again. It's, it's extremely frustrating. It truly, truly is. And really what it comes down to is that socialism is a fancy ideology to cover up for what's really a power grab on the part of uh, a ruling class. That's really what it is. And, and really, it's an indication that Democrats are literally out. They used to be this kind of moderate control government all the time. You know, control society through government programs a little bit here and there and here and there and here and there. But all these, all these programs have failed so badly that they've kind of, it's all been kind of discredited. Uh, the entire welfare state and the regulatory state, it's all been intellectually refuted and, and the public's really sick of it. Like you look at any of the polls, government's never been less popular than it is right now. So it's almost like you know, this this lurch to socialism is is their sort of hail hail Mary pass, you know? <laughs> right? 
and it's it's it creates more entitlements and more dependency though and in a time where student loan debt is crushing um people coming out of college who can't couldn't get the job right away that they wanted or spent a little time at home you know they they have I still have friends that are almost forty years old. Collect uh, still oh, 40000 dollars. Oh, is that right? Loan debt and student loan debt because you get to defer and then defer and then defer and then when you finally get your job, you start paying back. They still owe tons of money. Yeah, the worst thing about about this the student debt. First of all, you know, I I, I have this debate with my, my friends at American Institute for Economic Research because. Uh, the attitudes towards this are all over the place. Uh, my friend Will Luther doesn't think this is bad. But actually, I just know all these particular cases where people's whole whole lives are ruined by the, by this debt. They can't, <clears throat> like just one example, you get out of college and you start uh, getting a paying job, you've now got this, this debt to service. Um, you're not really in a position to uh, accept an extremely low paying job at a uh, at a startup. Um, or or get paid in stock options, you know, for a while, or even go without an income uh, for a year because you've got the you got this debt to service. So you're constantly like vexed by this need to service this loan, and it's not a normal loan. This is not like a credit card debt, you know, or even a mortgage payment or a car payment, where the the penalties of not paying or uh, you know repossession or or in the case of uh, really extreme cases, uh, just to, you know, do, do bankruptcy and wiping out uh, your debts. This is sort of the way we've come to deal deal with with uh, bad bad financial decisions mostly. But in the case of student loans, it's 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 unreal. You it's, you can't erase it. You can't get rid of it. Unlike every other kind of debt, there's no way to settle it um, in a uh, through through civil means. That it's it's. it's 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 like child support in that sense, you know. It's like it's not quite enforced with criminal penalties, but there's just simply no way to discharge the debt other than just paying it forever. And that, in that sense, it's it's a privilege. It's like a state privilege, you know. Well, because it's backed by the federal government, and when you right. have federal, the the federal government saying that you're going to get paid no matter what, these institutions, these colleges, universities, just increase the tuition rates. They could pay out as much as they want. They, they could charge whatever they want because the federal government is going to back the money. They're going to make sure they get paid. And it's all passed on to the student who just wants to go to college because it's put into their head. You must go to college after high school. So you think you have to take out this loan. You, you have to go to college. And then you, you owe it for the rest of your life. It sounds like you know something about economics. <laughs> it's something we I, can't say about anybody who's been on stage in the in the democratic uh, debates. <laughs> I, I, it's amazing to me, and there's a correlation I think between the whole socialist idea and how they're pounding the student debt. Because so many people, so many Americans are are crushed by the student debt that that is their gateway to socialism. Like the government's going to fix my problem, but what you forget is that government creates the problem. They created this problem by these federal backed loans. Uh, that's right, and and I I think your observation is really interesting because I think you're right that that the problem of the student debt loan uh, load on individuals is it does drive them towards a kind of ideological socialism because they're really annoyed by it. They don't want to do it. Oh, and here's the other thing: most of them are aware that there's the worst 
ROI of any any amount of money they've ever spent. You know, there's like they're, they're you know they they've got they got fifty thousand dollars in debt and nothing to show for it. So sometimes these kids, you know, they drop half the people are dropping out, you know, before they get their degree. So what do you? But you still owe the debt. So it's an outrage, right? So you're like, well, I got no degree, or I have a degree and I'm not using it. I still got a problem. I got to get a job like a normal person. Um, uh, you know, it, and and yet you've got this fifty thousand dollar debt. It makes you angry at the system, and you're like, why? Why are these rapacious loan officers coming after me uh, to pay make pay, pay for something I'm not actually benefiting from? <clears throat> yeah, that drives you to think the whole system is rigged. You begin to think this is how capitalism is, and and you begin getting opened up to kind of socialist socialistic attitudes. I, I have a friend of mine. And who reread recently a kind of uh, biography of Karl Marx? Apparently, this is how he got involved in socialist ideology. He got in tremendous financial trouble, couldn't couldn't service his debts, um, didn't know what to do with himself, and just got got angry at the at the whole system and thought, well, you know, we just need to overthrow it. And so that's really interesting. The funniest thing is, though, is that people don't realize the same system is telling you they're going to fix that problem by just getting rid of it. You cannot get rid of it. It all the money's got to come from somewhere. You know, and I I hear this a lot. Socialism can't survive without capitalism. So because it, 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 it fails every time it tries to get away from the capitalistic the free market ideas. It's all about control. They want control of the system and to centralize everything through them. They're the smartest people in the room. They have all the answers. That's that's how I see it. That, that's it. Well, and I think your point is 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 ex- actually really true. You can't deny economic reality. And you know what is that? It's that you know nothing comes, uh, nothing's for free. You know every uh, resource you expend is uh, taken from somewhere else. There's no magic way to generate prosperity without without uh, savings, without the opportunity costs, without deferred consumption. Um, all wealth has to be uh, produced through uh, gains from trade, division of labor, <clears throat> and and with that comes certain opportunity costs. So this this is what economics teaches us. If if I were going to sum it up in you know just a few sentences, that that's the main le- lesson you learn from economics. Uh, so when you see people on a stage just announcing that well we should just have free healthcare, we should have free education, we have free free everything, uh, that's literally denying reality. Do you, do you think that if they taught economics in high school that less people would go to college because they would figure out right away? Like, you know, think about why don't they teach economics your senior year of high school? Why is it the entry? Why do you start learning it in college? You know, is, is it to keep yeah, you? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I think a lot of people go to, to, to college, even though, you know, it's not clear what the return on investment is. Uh, based on this perception of of data that shows that, um, you know, your lifetime earnings are going to be much higher with a college degree. And so people imagine that that's true. The problem with this kind of data is that it really does mix up uh, kind of cause and effect. I mean, it's it's very likely that that even without uh, the expense of college and the, and the degrees, that the, the same people would still be high earners. Uh, because personal ambition and college education tend to be linked. Now, there's another subset of 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 consumers out there that are beginning to realize that it's kind of a racket and they're figuring it out. And we're seeing more and more people just not, not showing up to college anymore. And I think this is probably, for, for a lot of people, this is actually a better solution. 
uh, figuring out other ways to uh, get work experience and get get your education. There's some professions that utterly require a college degree because of uh, because of various certifications and things. You know, from accounting to law to medicine, right? And uh, engineering, you know, uh, actually is still a, a decent uh, degree to get. Um, yeah, uh, but that might be. Uh, about it, actually. Now, there are also some people who are called to live the life of the mind, you know, as intellectuals. That's a tiny percentage of the population, you know. Um, it's not everybody. So I don't know what these, the, the idea of universal college education, I mean, it would be so much cheaper if we would just give everybody a PhD at birth and then we wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, you know, the, I want to bring something up. And uh, in the state of New York, there's a huge shortage in, in plumber. The average age for an electrician, plumber, carpenter is up in the mid 40s. Like, is that right? The average age, because everybody is going to college rather than trade school or doing the oh. on the job training. Yeah. And what that does is drive up cost. In the state of New York, you to, to get electrical work done in your house is insanely expensive. Is that right? That's really interesting. Is, yeah. And think of that connection to the college increase in college people going to college for. You know, I, I call it a high school plus degree because it doesn't do anything. You know, a lot of these degrees that you get through college don't help you afterwards sure. with it landing a job, earning sure. good money. Where we we have a huge labor shortage in this country. I mean, it's it's amazing. Uh, I'm speaking to you right now from Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and it's a similar situation here. I mean, just to get anybody to come uh, do roofing or uh, even just you know paint paint or anything, it's it's extremely difficult. This long waiting list for for basic skills, and then you know we've 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 ruined our. We used to be this this country of uh, relative uh, liberal immigration, so that people could come here and work, and we had uh, plenty of workers. But now that's been shut down, and I'm I'm particularly bitter about the immigration question because the reason it's being shut down has nothing to do with you know contrary to what Trump says about crime. I mean there there's you know there are elements of back of the refugee crisis where there was a legitimate concern about that but <clears throat> normal immigration is not really about crime he's concerned about uh voting like he doesn't you know the republicans don't want the whole country to go the way that california went i mean that's 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 really what it's all about so you think about it we're destroying our our economy based on fear of uh how how the votes are going to go in elections and this is really Tragic. It's a, it's an example of how d democracy is can, can it can be sometimes a it's completely toxic system. So we're not you know denying human rights to people. We're we're experiencing massive labor shortage, all because the Republicans are in power and they're afraid the Democrats are going to are going to vote the that new immigrants are going to vote for vote for Democrats. And that's that's really what it all comes right. down. Right. Right. I totally yeah. I understand it. Right. The but, demographics show that. Yeah, more of the Hispanic population votes Democrat. So sure. now they're worried about when they're uh, coming in in such large numbers that they're going to lose every election from this point forward. That's exactly it. Yeah. That is what you just said is more truth than you'll ever hear, you know, from from anybody in the subject. That right. really they, they just won't admit it openly. But that's they what it is. It. And 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 it's true on the other side too. I mean, this is why Democrats are. All, all about immigration these days, 
Whereas they've historically been against it because they didn't want to compete, new workers competing with the labor unions. But now the labor unions are losing power. The Democrats are looking for voters. Yep. So it's like, oh, bring the immigrants. So it's extremely manipulative, very, very cynical, and it's actually hurting us economically. I'm very concerned about this, actually. I mean, once you add it all up, all the way the trends are going. And by the way, did you did you notice something? I don't know if you watched those ridiculous debates with the Democrats, but you noticed that Trump's trade policies were never even d- debated or discussed, much right. less disputed. You know what? I didn't even hear them really mention his name that much. I felt like everybody kind of didn't want to touch him yet. I think that's probably right, and well, that's interesting. Uh, but, but they might have even dropped, you know, br- brought up the topic of trade. But here's what I think is actually going on here. You talk about economic education, right? These reporters are terrified of economics because they think it's too technical, and they won't be able to manage it. Uh, so they have to stay on <clears throat> things that they can understand. Stupid subjects like, like, shouldn't we give free health care to everybody? You know, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we have a free college for everybody? You know, the, the, nice. these are the kinds of topics they can understand. But something like monetary policy or trade policy, they can't figure it out and they can't follow it. So I thought I was watching the TurboTax commercial that they had this year where the guy just said free, free, for free, for free, free, free. You know, like on the <laughs> it was like they advertised for TurboTax during the debates the whole time. <laughs> So, but speaking of manipulation, I want to get into cryptocurrency. Uh-huh. Cryptocurrency is very new. It's something that a lot of people don't understand, including I, I, I read on it, but I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'm no expert by any means. Oh, I'm sympathetic to it. You know, when I, when I first heard about this stuff back in 2010, you know, I, I read the white paper and I was reading about it. I couldn't understand it either. I mean, it wasn't until really 2013 when I really got busy reading about it. And back in those days, it was very difficult to even find anything about it. Like I couldn't figure out what this stuff was. I mean, a major concern that I had was, is the supply of these things, if you want to call them that, is it limited? Because if it's not limited, it's not going to work. Uh, Money has to be scarce. And it wasn't until 2013 I finally got an answer to that by reading a Wired Magazine article that coincidentally happened to be a big attack on Bitcoin. But they pointed out that a protocol limits the supply. Now that's really interesting. If that's true, then you could possibly have a viable money. And I began to look at it and I began to realize that uh, the reason it's scarce is because of this ledger. It's a ledger technology that keeps track of ownership rights. And the ledger itself is what's called distributed, meaning that anybody can run the ledger and meaning that nobody is in control of it. The protocol is in control of the ledger itself. So this distributed ledger exists all over the world. There could potentially be a billion copies of this ledger, and they're all every every uh, every node, as they say, is synced up with every other node. So there's a universal agreement on what these ownership rights look like. You trade ownership rights on the ledger through using a cryptographically protected exchange. So you have a public address, and you send it to another public address. It communicates with the private key. Uh, the switch is made. The, the ledger changes and 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 you're, you're done that's that's called you know trading in and these thing called Bitcoin Bitcoin is doesn't actually exist it's just a, a mathematical insignia you could say right. um, and it came to be priced um, once it became clear that it worked so now you've got a scarce commodity 
that makes possible peer-to-peer exchange around the world. So that began to absorb uh, the valuation of, uh, in, in terms of uh, whatever, whatever terms you want to make it, whether it's euros or yen or goods and services or dollars, whatever it is, it becomes a, a scarce economic good. So it's, it's, it's implausible, it's a little bit crazy, um, but uh, it, it does in fact work. Uh, the first application of this is, of course, the creation of a kind of a non-state money. And, and it's worked. I mean, it's very interesting to me because I, I began to, I guess the first trades I ever made with Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin was trading at $14. And then it quickly moved up to $30 and everybody was screaming that it's a bubble. And I remember in those days deciding, okay, I think this stuff is a good technology. I think it actually works and it's and it's real. It's not a it's not a fake. And <clears throat> I remember thinking at the time, once it hits a hundred dollars, people will realize that it's it's authentic. It's not a hoax. And then I thought, well, that didn't work. Maybe once it hits a thousand dollars, then people will recognize that it's the real thing. Well maybe if it hits ten thousand dollars, people will recognize so what is it up to now? Uh, I'm looking at the price right now. It's twelve thousand. Oh my god! <laughs> it's and and the volatility is outrageous, right? I mean, like we could wake up tomorrow morning and I, there's certain patterns you could begin to recognize. There's, uh, but it could be back down to nine thousand. I wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. Um, but what we've seen in the Bitcoin markets, basically, if you were going to sort of pattern throw together a, a pattern, uh, it goes like this. It's like three steps up and then two steps back, and then three steps up, and then two steps back. So the, the trick of, of, of trading, if you're just going to speculate in, in uh, these assets, is to recognize when you're on the, the third step, you know, and, and, and to get out before the two back steps occur. And that is not always easy, I can tell you. Here, here's my concern, and, and maybe you can help me understand this. There was a time... Not too long ago, everybody carried cash on them, right? Yep. If if somebody wanted to steal your money, they would rob you in the street, take your cash, and leave. Now, not many people carry money. I barely have cash on me. Everybody, I'm I'm guilty of it. I should probably carry more cash, but everybody just swipes now. Credit cards. People don't get robbed in the street like they used to. Yeah. Grand larceny is now the new crime and identity theft. I mean, banks don't even have cash anymore. <laughs> right. I so, found this out a couple of days ago. I was trying to make a cash withdrawal, and the lady looked at me. She goes, well, we don't have any cash. Yeah, you got to you got to call in advance, right? Like, hey, listen, I'm coming in two days to withdraw a couple thousand dollars if you could make sure it's there. Isn't that funny? Uh, yeah. So now you carry a credit card, and there's a different type of crime that, I guess, to remove the steal money. Now we're moving into digital currency where everything, there is no card. It's all, you know, it's, it, it, what are the risks in the, in the digital market and in, in, in manipulation and theft? How do you prevent that? Uh, like to make people feel easy about it. Like, okay, I feel like my money's safe invested in this. Well, the beauty of cryptocurrency compared with, credit cards is credit cards and banks can shut you down at any time and people don't recognize this they don't realize it but it is a permission-based system you only have access to your bank account because the bank agrees to let you have that but at any point that could be shut down your credit card can be 
Bobby, you've had you've had it happen to you. If you've ever been traveling somewhere, try to use your credit card. Credit card doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'll actually use Greece as this example. When they had their big crush and the banks ran out of money and the people couldn't couldn't even get money out of the ATM. They couldn't get any of their money out of their bank account. That's right. That is right. It's it's you can be censored f- from access to your own funds because these these systems are entirely mediated by these institutions that can decide whether or not and to what extent you have access. And we take it for granted that we do because we mostly do, but we mostly do until we don't. And that is a serious problem. It's a it's a major problem. And that's what cryptocurrency overcomes. I mean, like, I can literally send you um, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, you know, the, any one of a thousand things right now without asking anybody's permission. All you have to have is a, a private key, which you can get, um, and and put it on what's called a wallet, and then I can send it to you. And nobody, I don't have to ask anybody's permission. Nobody's processing the transaction. There's no uh, banks involved. There's no government involved. There's nobody's involved. It's just you and me. And so, in other words, a good way to to describe cryptocurrency is to say it's cash for the internet. In the same sense, if you're standing in front of me, I can hand you a five dollar bill and you can take it. And we take that for granted. Nobody can stop us. That same system uh, works uh, all over the world between any two individuals with with cryptocurrency, and that's a, a, a major step forward. Now we're nowhere near that. One of the it's actually the key problem in the cryptocurrency world is that it cannot scale to include all the world's transactions. Once Bitcoin became very fashionable in 2017 at the height of the boom, you know, when it almost reached $20,000 like, for, for one day. I think the run up between $10,000 and $20,000 was a total of 10 days and wasn't that much. <laughs> but at the height of that thing, you could not use this stuff because it was really expensive. I, me- I remember... I used to send people a buck all the time. You know, just say, "Oh, here's a buck. Here's a buck. Here's a buck." Just passing out one one dollars, one dollar in Bitcoin because I wanted people to kind of get used to what it was like to hold it and receive it. You couldn't do that anymore. Like, if I sent you a buck, and when the mempools were at their height in in 2007, this is even true in 2018. If I tried to send you a buck, the miners would charge me like eight. So I send you a dollar and I have to pay $8 to get it to you. And then the settlement times would be as long as an hour or even a day or sometimes two days. It's completely not scalable. And that's for very specific reasons. Bitcoin itself, uh, the the managers of the, of the protocol, it's, it's kind of a distributed protocol that can be adapted all the time. But they refuse to increase uh, the block size. So I think right now the block size limit is like two two megabytes. And once you include signatures in that and other other data, um, you you get basically a, a, a shortage in 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 bandwidth is what really what it comes down to. And so that allows uh, the the uh, uh, machines that are con- uh, confirming uh, transactions to be able to uh, bid on uh, the rights to get into the next block because there's a shortage of space. So it gets more and more and more expensive. <clears throat> and you know that's that's obviously an unworkable system, and there's lots of proposals out there uh, to do with this. But that that's that's a remaining problem. And uh, well, there are other problems too. There's the volatility question. I mean, like it's impossible really to do your accounting. I wouldn't say impossible, but it's let's just say uh, 
really not very viable to do your accounting and, and cryptocurrency. I mean, it's just not, you know, you can't go to bed <clears throat> and wake up the next morning and find two thirds of your uh, uh, capital stock uh, wiped out. You know, it's just not, it's not viable, which is one of the reasons we're seeing the rise of these things called stable coins. You know, Facebook's putting out its own currency. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and that concerns me, though, because uh, <laughs> I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. And it should. It should concern you. I think it's kind of um, <clears throat> it's until we get a pure crypto um, that is scalable, we're going to continue to have problems. And I don't see Facebook's currency as a as a, a long term solution. I do think it's probably going to work in a sense that it's actually going to be a major competition for the dollar. That's something I wanted to ask you. Do you think that there's a time that cryptocurrency could replace the dollar and be like, basically unite because globalization is real the world is interconnected every country has interest in every other country if there was one currency could it be digital to make the exchange easier uh, yeah uh, i definitely think that this will happen eventually i don't know what eventually uh, looks like though um, something that I think is going to happen <clears throat> before that happens is that the dollar is going to lose its status as the world reserve currency and I think that's going to happen within the next five years we're already headed that direction and it's because of a confluence of events the US pulling out from its uh, uh, obligations to support the world trading system that is usually important the rise of, of stable coins uh, like Facebook's Libra, um, the uh, tremendous annoyance, well, the rise of new trading blocks like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is just this powerful, hugely powerful machine. Uh, oh, also the advance of American sanctions. We now have sanctions. I did an accounting the other day. I don't know, it seems like dozen countries maybe it's even two dozen at some level and um, that doesn't really work I mean you can't you can't just tell everybody you can't trade with Iran I mean that's just that's just not going to or you can't buy uh, you can't use Huawei products I mean this is these these are extreme claims and what it's doing is incentivizing some very very powerful uh, large uh, trading blocks around the world to try to find alternatives to the dollar so it's really an irony. It'd be like, <clears throat> what's happening right now is that the uh, uh, U.S. U.S. policies are are kind of all working together to, in a, in effect, <clears throat> um, uh, make the dollar actually less and less viable as a as an international reserve currency. So I think that's coming to an end. I mean, it's been it's been the world reserve currency now uh, since World War II, and but along with that, we've seen the rise of globalization. Now we're seeing it turning back away from globalization, which I think is going to unseat the dollar. Does which that, is why does everybody's it, panicked about the Libra right now. That's the real reason. You know? I was going to say, does that really, how bad does that hurt us? Because prior to World War II, like you just said, it wasn't the world reserve. Right. We, we still got through life. We made it you know, up to that point. Do we, how bad does that hurt us as a nation economically? Okay, the the consequences, 
we're, we're in speculative ground right now, but I think I think one of the possible consequences of this is the repatriation of dollars from abroad. And that is going to fundamentally change American monetary policy. Because up to now, we've kind of been able to count on basically uh, an infinite market for excess dollars created by the Fed. You know, there's always a market out there. There's always, that's why we're able to run up, you know, trillions of dollars of debt and, and so on, is that there's, a, you know, this, this huge market for um, treasury debt all over the world. <clears throat> and because of the dollars world reserve currency, there's an infinite market for dollars. I and mean, you can spend dollars anywhere you travel in the entire world. I mean, I, I use dollars in, in Korea, you know, recently, and people are happy to take them. That's crazy, right? Yeah. Um, but that, what if that stops being true? I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's going to be really interesting because the Fed is really going to have to change. You know, I don't want to be like a gloom and doomer and say we're facing hyperinflation or something like that. But the truth is that civilized countries have in the past um, accidentally demonetized their currency, you know, such as uh, 1922 in Germany. So it, it has happened in the past. I don't know. I think it could be really interesting. One outstanding aspect of the loss of the dollar as a world reserve currency is it will massively diminish um, sort of the ability of the U.S. to sort of bully everybody in the world. You know, there's not going to be any more regime change, you know, after that. <laughs> the U.S. Right. might have to become a regular country, which I think actually will be a benefit to yeah. the world and to uh, to Americans. Well, think about this. We have our military stretched thin all over the entire planet. We got more bases overseas than I think we have in our country. Uh, yeah. You know, we have always have to be involved in dictating other people how they should live. I think it's it's too much, and, it, and it's unsustainable long-term, and at some point we need to rein it back in. And that's why I always... Uh, I have a lot of libertarians come on, a lot of libertarian guests, and uh, there needs to be another main option, a third option during these elections. Uh, Justin Amash, his name's been thrown around. Um, who would you like to see uh, be a candidate as a libertarian candidate for president? Well, I, the only name that comes to mind is is Justin Amash, actually. Yeah. He's he he called Trump out and uh, they turned his back on him. He just hasn't yeah. he hasn't so, rolled it out. But yeah, uh, so one of the things that I've gradually come to realize about this question of of <clears throat> who should be elected and who shouldn't be, and this is something I didn't really realize in the past. To be a public official, to be in office, is really a job and it's a skill. And you have to know how to do it. You have to know how to manage a bureaucracy. You have to know how to manage your time, how to manage PR. There's a lot that goes into it. So in other words, it's not enough that a person just have the right views. You actually do have to have knowledge of the legislative process. You have to have the patience to work through it, a good awareness of how to prioritize your time. You have to do a good job, in other words, right? right. So I think in that sense, you're better off with somebody with some degree of experience. And I would say Amash is that kind of person. 
it's, you know, as you described that, it doesn't sound anything like our current president. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. yeah. That doesn't still, really pick him out to be a, a good candidate. <laughs> no, and he's, you know, the one thing about Trump is that he's he's a lot of fun, right? I mean, like, even, like, and and I've been warning about this Trump guy since 2015, and I was, I was really alarmed by his protectionist rhetoric and... Um, you know, his anti-immigration stuff and his, his attacks on the press and even his his demands that he seems to think he knows how to run every business better than the, the businessmen themselves. You know, he's telling Apple where to buy their products. And it's all crazy. It's also possible he's going to break up the tech companies, wants to break up Google, wants to break up Amazon. It's all just crazy. Um, I forgot where I was going with this. Oh, um, yeah. And so um, he is not, I wouldn't say, okay, he's like tremendously entertaining. I mean, that's, a major reason why people love him you know i mean i i can't i'm in awe of the guy because you know i'm a public speaker myself the idea that i would be able to stand in front of a full stadium of people with a microphone and delight everybody for two solid hours is inconceivable <laughs> you know i'm good i'm not that good nobody's as good as trump he's amazing he's right. amazing like the greatest he's an entertainer <laughs> yeah the greatest public performer on the planet today and in that sense I don't think we've ever had a president that is, is anywhere near as good at <clears throat> just pure politicking as Trump is. He's utterly amazing. As a manager and a governor, it's chaos every day. Yeah. Every day. And we still haven't gotten rid of Obamacare, by the way. That was like no. a central promise he made going into the election. No. Still hasn't happened. No. You know what? It, it, here's how I feel with the, with the whole health care and Republican and Democrat thing. All it, Obamacare was there. He, he, all he wanted to do basically was replace it with something else, something better. That's all he would say. He would just change the name to Trump Care. I mean, and tell you it's better. It doesn't mean it's going to be better. The removing the government from that involvement is the only way to improve health care. It's health insurance competing against each other across state lines. Another thing that he promised, which I don't see happening, um, it's it's like you have healthcare in New York. You go to New Jersey. You don't have healthcare. That's that's ridiculous, you know. And if they compete against each other, they're gonna want your business. Get government out of the way. Yeah, that no, that's right. I mean, uh, and really, when people ask me, do you favor um, universal uh, healthcare? Um, yes, I do. Through market means, right. the market can provide universal health care in the same way it provides universal Google searches and universal access to uh, fruits and vegetables and you know everything market is market is brilliant at distrib at, at producing and distributing goods and services that's what it does best and of course health care is one of them but we've disabled the market right. and, and that that's why we've got problems there's only a few hundred politicians right that are in DC your Congress your Senate your um, your president they are not that look how small we have 350 million people in this country you're going to tell me that those are the people that are the smartest and brightest and that no you're not even doctors so how do you know anything about the healthcare industry you're not insurance providers you know they don't know it, it drives me nuts I, I, i'm a big <laughs> remove government from the equation and things will get better right people get stuck on this question of pre-existing conditions uh, because they can't imagine how getting rid of that that uh, regulation <clears throat> is going to uh, they they're afraid that some people will be hurt 
And the truth is that in short term, yes, the answer is that some people lose their health care and there'll be some short term suffering. Um, on the other hand, you know, a market demand that's unmet immediately is a market opportunity for an entrepreneur, for a business to swing in, <clears throat> figure out how to reallocate risk pools and, um, and figure out some solution that works for everybody. But, but you have to at least take that initial step. And until we can get rid of this pre-existing uh, conditions mandate, we're never going to fix American health care. I'm sorry to say it that way, but it's just true. I mean, we, it, that was the great concession. I knew even in the campaign when Trump said he's going to get rid of um, <clears throat> Obamacare and replace it with somebody else. And people ask, what about pre-existing conditions? And he would say, oh, no, of course, we're never going to get rid of that regulation. Right. It, you oh. know, once, it's also once you put something in there, it's so hard to people yeah. get off of the dependency. Yeah, that's the heart of that's the heart of Obamacare is that. Well, I want to thank you for coming on to this podcast. I am extremely excited and had a, had a great time talking to you. Oh, Please I, tell I, it. Yeah, I enjoyed everybody, every, every minute of it. You can uh, go to American Institute for Economic Research at AIR.org. You can follow me at Twitter at uh, Jeffrey A. Tucker. And um, let's stay in touch. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. And to all my listeners, remember, go to our Facebook page at American Liberty Podcast, like the page, and subscribe to the show on any of either Stitcher, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and iTunes. Thanks again, Jeffrey, for joining me today. Great talk. Thank you. Thank you.